0: Watchers in the 4th Dimension.
1: Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the 4th Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And I say, this is like something by that novelist chap, Mr. Wells. This episode, we're accidentally releasing an ancient god who is held captive by the power of the Pyramids of Mars. But first, Don's going to take us through the mail.
2: Over to you, Don. Uh, this week, we're kind of light on mail. We just have two items on the recent bonus Big Finish episode on Return of the Cybermen. JM Casey says, going to have to listen to this one. I enjoyed some of the Lost stories quite a bit. But with Return of the Cybermen and that Dalek one based on Nation's early rejected Genesis thing, it seemed like they were scraping a bit. The last one I heard that I really enjoyed was The Nightmare Country, a fifth Doctor story by whose scriptwriter, actual novelist, Steve Gallagher. Actual novelist. Wow. And Nathan Law says, I found this one to be an interesting listen. To be fair, it's been a while since I've seen Revenge, but my impression was that this was an even worse story than that one. Mostly, other than listening to Sadie and Christopher Naylor for the first time, I couldn't remember anything about it, even though I'd only listened to it earlier this year. The fact that there's more gender diversity isn't hard Then, Revenge is a good one, but this one just seems so boring. I just had a hard time paying attention to it, which is rare for a big finish story, even from the Lost Stories range. And with that remarkable quickness, the mail is complete. <laughs> wow.
3: It seems like I have different opinions on that one.
1: But when does that ever happen? And thank you, Don. And as a reminder to our listeners, we really do love hearing all of your feedback, comments, thoughts, and questions. And as you've just heard, we read out as many of them as possible. As always, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at watchers 4 d or via email at watches4d at gmail.com. And as always, we would dearly love to hear from you, so please do leave us a message. Taking a look behind the scenes on Pyramids of Mars, this is another one with a slightly difficult path to production. Script editor Robert Holmes was on a mission to bring in fresh talent into the writer's pool for the show's 13th season. With that in mind, he approached Louis Greifer, or possibly Greifer, but I'm going to call him Greifer, a former colleague of his from his ATV days. Aware of Greifer's interest in ancient Egyptian mythology, Holmes suggested that he develop a storyline that would combine science fiction with the tropes of mummy horror films. Greifer agreed and submitted a draft storyline at the start of July 1974. Greifer's original storyline was vastly different to what ended up on screen. In this version, the doctor and his companion, who at the time in Greifer's original draft was not called Sarah, attended a conference on food reserves hosted at the British Museum in the present day, and it was suggested once again that Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart might be killed off during the story. (laughs) The doctor's friend, Professor Fawzi, and his partner, Dr. Robertson, were there to unveil their work on a new type of grain which could flourish on the surface of the moon, thereby solving the world's hunger problems. However, the conference was soon attacked by the crocodile-like Egyptian god Sebek and his army of mummies. Sebek and his master Seth were aliens who came to Earth millennia ago intent on conquest, but were placed in suspended animation via a powerful artifact called the Eye, wielded by Horus, another of their kind. Having reawakened, Seth and Sebek now intended to replace Forzy and Roberts' grain with a type which would result in the Moon's disintegration, which in turn would have catastrophic effects on Earth. The Doctor managed to locate Seth's resting place beneath an Egyptian pyramid and was assisted by Horus and another deity, Isis, in defeating Seth and destroying the probe which carried the grain in mid-flight. Personally, I can't wait for the inevitable Big Finish version. Yes. Although he had concerns around Greifer's understanding of the show's format, Holmes met with him and they fleshed out ideas for what was tentatively titled The Pyramids of Mars. Note the definite article. Holmes suggested that the gods could be from Mars, having fled the planet after it was devastated in an intergalactic war. Holmes, however, didn't like the grain storyline and suggested that the project involve humanity terraforming Mars's surface into a habitable environment. Seth would attempt to hijack the mission, with his goal being to fire a rocket at the Great Pyramid of Mars, where his jailers still slept in suspended animation. Holmes also encouraged Greifer to establish scientific explanations for the supernatural elements of his story. Former producer Barry Letts suggested that the Egyptian gods may all originate from different alien planets, thus explaining why they all differ physically from each other. Despite his concerns, Holmes formally commissioned Greifer to write a storyline for Pyramids Mars, the definitive article now dropped, at the beginning of July 1974. At this point, Holmes was considering making the search for the Eye of Horus, which was to disappear during the serial's climax, a recurring theme in subsequent adventures. Despite his continuing reservations about the storyline, Holmes contracted Greifer for four scripts at the end of July. The full script for the first episode was delivered at the end of September. At the beginning of October, Holmes told Greifer that he was straying too far from the mummy horror premise. Shortly after, Greifer was taken ill and required surgery, delaying completion of the final three scripts. Once delivered, Holmes discovered that the finished scripts failed to tie up key plot points and lacked an emphasis on the doctor's involvement, and so were unsuitable for production. In late November, Greifer left England for Israel, where he was taking up a teaching position in Tel Aviv, and he was no longer available for further rewrites. In March 1975, Holmes informed Greifer's agent that the scripts would be abandoned, and he found himself in the position of having to rewrite the adventure from scratch and worked very closely with assigned director Paddy Russell, who we last saw directing season 11's Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Holmes abandoned many of Greifer's ideas, including the modern-day setting, the involvement of Unit, and Sebek. Holmes instead set the serial in 1911, which better set up the homage to the mummy horror genre. Seth became the focal villain, with Holmes changing the name to Set and eventually settling on Sutek, all of which were various names for that same deity in Egyptian mythology. Wary of the notion that historical stories don't matter, because we've already seen modern-day Earth in other Doctor Who serials, Holmes took the opportunity to include a scene in Part 2 which depicted how the events of 1911 could change Sarah's present. Meanwhile, it was producer Philip Hinchcliffe who suggested the inclusion of the logic puzzle in part four, drawing on Franz Kafka's 1926 novel The Castle. Pyramids of Mars was to be the first serial made as part of the show's 13th production block. It was also originally scheduled to be the very first serial of season 13, but plans were changed when the BBC decided to move the season up to the beginning of autumn 1975. With Terror of the Zygons being held over from the show's 12th production block to start season 13, consideration was given to moving the schedule around. And ultimately, it was decided to swap Pyramids of Mars with Planet of Evil in the running order, really to avoid starting the season with two Earthbound stories. Joining Paddy Russell behind the scenes, we have the return of several series regulars, composer Dudley Simpson, production unit manager George Galaccio, and the legendary Barbara Kidd as costumer. One newcomer joins us with Christine Rusco as designer. This is the first of three outings for her. She also worked on Doomwatch, Paul Temple, and yes, of course, Zed Cars. Location filming for the serial took place at Stargroves, a manor house in East End, Hampshire. This property was owned at the time by Mick Jagger and was occupied by his parents, and it would serve as the exterior of the Priory and its surrounding area. During location filming, Elizabeth Sladen was suffering from a case of flu, and Tom Baker found himself incredibly frustrated when director Paddy Russell insisted that he actually wear a mummy costume for the scenes where the Doctor disguises himself as one of the robots. Russell thought that Tom Baker's body language would be distinctive, but Tom thoroughly disliked appearing in scenes where he wouldn't be recognisable. And to make things worse, he also suffered from scrapes which were actually quite painful from the costume's fibreglass frame. The serial also featured what was technically a new TARDIS console room, although we've already seen it in Planet of Evil since that was broadcast first, but this was its first outing in actual production. And we hadn't actually seen the TARDIS interior since Death to the Daleks. That's quite a long time. The finished serial was broadcast between the 25th of October and the 15th of November, 1975. Three of the four episodes broke the 10 million viewer mark, with part two reaching as high as number 15 in the weekly viewing charts. Clearly, this one captured the imagination of many. With our behind-the-scenes segment out of the way, our short summary is in my hands this episode. It's 1911. A British archaeologist comes across an ancient Egyptian tomb and quite clearly hopes to add to the British Museum's collection. (laughs) However, he didn't count on his own body actually being added to the collection of the ancient Egyptian god Sutak, who sends him on a murderous rampage to kill all the old men on an English country estate. (laughs) There's actually a reason for it, but it's far less amusing than just pointing out that, just this once, Sarah Jane, everyone dies. (laughs) After the killing spree, the Doctor gets possessed, takes us to Mars, where we have to endure a rerun of the final episode of Death of the Daleks, but without that fantastic flaw. Glad someone else noticed that. (laughs) And to wrap things up, the Doctor pulls some timey-wimey shenanigans out of his ass to kill Sutek once and for all. The end. Alright, let's talk about it. Part one. I'm glad that you
0: went ahead and brought it up, Anthony, but can you name a more iconic duo than the English and stealing shit out of Egypt?
1: Hey, man, there's that joke that the only reason the pyramids are not in the British Museum is because they were too heavy for us to transport.
3: (laughs) That's pretty accurate. I realized that this is combining the mummy with Stargate, and I've decided that both mummy and Stargate are better.
0: Wow.
2: There's been many versions (laughs) of the mummy before this decided to rip it off,
3: and
1: Stargate wasn't invented yet. (laughs) This is basically a ripoff of Hammer's blood from the mummy's tomb. Hmm. I mean, they've just taken the doctor and plunked him in that.
0: And that's what's so striking about this is I had not gotten this far before on my separate watching, but I'd always read that this is a period where the show goes more horror focus and particularly Hammer-esque. And I'm all here for it. I love it. I really enjoy it. I just wish that they could have added a bit more atmosphere as in like, if it's going to be all mood setting, why not have some scenes at night maybe? Right. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been kind of cool.
1: And Riley, it's funny because that's actually a really common criticism that this all takes place in the day. And I almost think that's deliberate. It's just to show how absolutely out of place the mummies are in Edwardian England.
2: Maybe, but that doesn't go very far in setting a mood for your horror story.
1: Come on, organ music, man. Organ music. Uh,
0: Hey, the organ music was great. I like a bad guy
1: that provides his own score. (laughs) And then when he's done
0: playing the organ, he gets up and the score just continues on without him.
2: This is what I want to play when
1: I'm being evil, okay? Make this happen. Take notes, Simpson. Take notes. (laughs) Let's talk about the opening scene in the TARDIS because the Doctor is a moody little shit at the beginning.
3: (laughs) No, he's a moody little shit the entire time. (laughs) I honestly think that he has such a dramatic shift that I just don't quite get him in this serial it just seems so out of place to go this far in this moody direction
1: he was fairly moody in the second half of planet of evil so it doesn't feel like a huge shift to me he just carries on with that vibe
0: when was the last time the doctor had or if it's ever happened before his own personal issue that didn't involve one of his companions this is just him feeling bad because sir jane made a joke that he was middle-aged or something
1: yeah, and he's like, well, yes, I am in Time Lord, years." Exactly. So
0: it's kind of interesting because it provides some more depth instead of having like that one character never changes it well, changes between the doctors, but his personality doesn't change. But, you know, everyone has a bad day.
3: I think what's difficult is the fact that he's always had moments of goofiness in all the other serials, and we get basically none of that.
0: I think
2: we got one of the goofiest moments in this serial, but that'll have to wait till episode four.
1: <laughs> but overall i think a lot of it he starts out kind of moody but when he gets there and realizes what's going on the severity of the threat posed by sutek causes him to take it incredibly seriously
3: and that's another criticism i have i hate this concept of this one all powerful being who can destroy the entire universe i i don't like it
2: i like sutek but his motivation is a little eh
3: that
0: too if that was his motivation his character should be different he should be insane or completely just obsessed but he just seems like your standard stock egotistical villain you know like he's on a quest for power but that's not really what he wants he just wants to destroy things which that doesn't seem to be reflected in his
1: personality it's kind of like i'm sutek the destroyer it's just what i do man (laughs) (laughs)
3: yeah (laughs) like pick one If you're going to destroy things, destroy things and just do it. I don't know. I didn't really find Sutek to be all that interesting. I liked the other villains. I liked the people who were possessed. I liked the mummies around, but Sutek himself just did not impress me.
0: About the mummies, could we discuss their design? I would say that it's interesting, to say the least. It's like they're... I can't really find any other term for it other than they seem geometrically
1: swole. (laughs) Yeah, they're quite busty.
0: Yeah, they're like Lara Croft early video game kind of (laughs) graphics looking. And I don't know what they're going for. Was it to imply that there is a robot underneath this that's awkwardly shaped?
2: That's what I get out of it. Although I do want to see them face off against the robot Yeti. (laughs) Oh yeah, Because you've got odd proportions in different places and I think it would be
1: hilarious. (laughs) Adonkadonks versus damn titties. Uh. (laughs) Uh. i mean it seems to me like the main reason for their ample chests was mostly to kill the poacher in episode two or three the hug of death (laughs) death. but we'll get back to that yes
3: we've also got another shoulder rub of death in this (laughs) one Mm -hmm. i guess that's the tom baker way of dying is now instead of getting karate chopped it's going to be shoulder rubs
1: certainly the holmes and hinchcliffe era yes In his last episode, he features his arch nemesis,
2: the Chiropractor,
1: and that's what causes his regeneration. (laughs) Who is, of course, a Time Lord. (laughs) Of course. All right. I do want to, before we move too far, of course, talk about some of the supporting characters we're introduced to in part one, because we meet Ibrahim Namin, who is the servant of Sutek, or at least as far as he's concerned, he is, and Dr. Warlock. And I don't think we meet, oh no, we do meet Lawrence in part one. So we Mm -hmm. also meet Lawrence and we meet Marcus. So we've got all of our main players here in part one. And I've got to say, I think Namine is just wonderfully over the top. Yeah, he's awesome. Yes. I kind of love how Warlock just doesn't get it. He's always just like, are you quite okay, old chap? (laughs) And I think Lawrence is like an Edwardian version of Harry who could have been a companion.
2: Yeah, I was getting a lot of Harry vibes from him. And, and the mean was, was inadvertently funny, mainly because of the organ playing that we talked about earlier, which that made me really happy. I'm like, OK, you're just going to you're just going to provide your own score. That's
0: great. I love it. I wish he was around longer. The mean. Yeah.
1: When I saw this one as a kid, I always thought that when he gets up from the organ and it keeps playing, it's like <laughs> the power of Sutek that keeps the organ playing. <laughs>
0: <gasps> Even as a child, Anthony trying to do cannon to make Doctor Who make sense. The drama of Sutek compels you.
3: <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be that person who's going to bring up the fact that this is all a whole bunch of old white Englishmen,
1: oh, and come I'm not on. here for it. Ibrahim the Mean is not an old white Englishman.
3: <laughs> okay, but everyone else is.
1: To be fair, it takes place in England in 1911. And the question I would have for you, Julie, I understand the lack of gender diversity is a concern, but I'm not sure where I would put in a woman in a positive way, given that everyone fucking dies in this story.
3: Obviously, she would be the one person who didn't die.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She'd be the maid. They may clean up all the bodies. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much.
3: <laughs> she would be the maid, yes, but she would be the one who actually like runs the household and is hitting them all upside the head, telling them how idiotic they are. That's how you put a woman in there. She's the one who's actually in charge. But in any case, I kind of see what you're saying, Anthony, but it still bothers me because it all stems from not just from the storyline, but it stems from the Holmes and Hinchcliffe just being like, we don't know what to do with women, so we're not going to do it.
1: Well, specifically Holmes. I yeah. suspect him completely taking this one and rewriting it himself, and then putting it out under the pseudonym Stephen Harris to get around union regs. This is Holmes's fingerprints all over it.
0: To back up Julie's point, even though there weren't that many characters, it became such of like a blur to me at one point that I honestly thought Lawrence was multiple old white guys. <laughs> I thought I was dealing with three, but then after a while, I'm like, oh, wait, no, that's the same one. It's, it's, it's just Lawrence. He's the one that's not evil, just very, very naive and stupid. I couldn't yes. keep
3: up with the names and thought that the poacher was Lawrence for a while. And I was like, oh, wait, nope, never mind.
0: You call him the poacher. I call him our yokel from Third Doctor era.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. He's 100% the stereotypical country yokel. I was like, wow, this is a blast from the past. Hey, speaking of blast of the past,
0: we did not mention the Victoria callback. Yeah.
3: It was both Vicky and Victoria, because he first says Vicky, and he's like, no, 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 Victoria. Mm. Okay, first off, they're two extremely different women. He did mention both. I think it was meant to be both.
0: Well, there you go, Julie. I mean, come on, they mentioned two women. (laughs) And is that enough for you?
3: No, no, it's not.
0: (laughs) Can we please, please, as we get to the end of episode one, we talked about Namin's organ plane, but it sets up... The sarcophagus opening and it opens a doorway to an ABBA music video. And it is amazing.
1: (laughs) I love that colorful vortex. Oh, I
0: do too. They do a really good job with that. I thought, I don't know about you, Don, I thought the CSO was used well. I was happy with the
1: CSO up until episode four. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah, Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. I love the ending of this. You get the figure all in black in robes coming down the tunnel, and as he walks, the ground smokes, and Ibrahim basically says, I'm the servant of Sutek, and he says, I'm the servant of Sutek, he needs no other, and gives him the shoulder rub of death. <laughs>
0: the smoking shoulder
1: rub of death, and the smoke was a great effect. I thought that looked great. And then you have the Doctor, Sarah, and Lawrence looking on from the doorway in absolute terror, and that's our cliffhanger, and it was so cool. Yes. It gives you the impression that there are some stakes and that our heroes are kind of a bit scared of this.
3: I will say I really did like the cliffhanger in the end of part one. I really liked it.
1: And before that, you have the Doctor saying, if I'm right, the world is facing the greatest peril in its history. Shit's bad, yo. There's no flippancy. (laughs) There's no nonsense. Even the Doctor's worried. It's not good. Part two. I believe it's here
0: that we got our background information, our explanation of who Sutek is and what's happening. At this point, I realize why wasn't Eric von Dynekin given like a co writer <laughs> yeah. credit for this? Because it seems it's right down that aisle there. It had to have been an influence.
3: I have to say one thing though, and sorry, it might be a different topic, but. Throughout this, there are different times when people either die or they get hurt or injured or something, and sometimes that acting is really not all that good. (laughs) I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm not particularly thrilled when the doctor activates the sargophagus thing, and he does this like weird shaking, falls over, and all that. Not my favorite.
0: It's kind of a rollover from the death acting
1: in Plane of Evil. Just a little bit, yeah.
3: It's not as bad. Mm-hmm. But it's still not where I'd like it to be.
1: I do love the acting on Marcus, though. I think someone who's possessed but still has some vague idea mm-hmm. of who he is at times, he's wonderfully creepy, particularly when you combine it with the makeup. And
3: Oh, that makeup.
1: Some of his turns of phrase, like when he's talking to Dr. Warlock and he's like, I came to find the other Skarman. It's so weird and something no one would actually say, except for someone who's been possessed by an ancient Egyptian god. It's his incredible cheekbones. He just Uh has that
2: I am the bad guy in a hammer-esque horror movie look to him. It's perfect casting.
3: What I loved, though, and one of my favorite actings is from our country, Yokel, when he's (laughs) running in the woods and he hits that invisible wall. I actually (laughs) thought, while it was funny, they did a good job of doing that invisible wall. They did. I really enjoyed some of those shots.
1: It's well established and it's never forgotten. I feel like at times the show in other serials has set up certain things and then just conveniently ignored it. Whereas as long as it stands until the Doctor deactivates it, it's a thing that is consistently there.
3: Oh, and another thing is that especially a lot of the shots in the woods, there's a lot of interesting close-ups. There's some perspective shots that I think were really well done, so... Patty Russell, again, thank you so much. Our lady director is great.
0: I agree with you on the shots. I feel like maybe this was an issue with the script. I felt like we spent too much time in our little chase sequences in the woods. Maybe that could have been cut back a little bit. I'm glad that Patty Russell made it visually interesting. But
1: after a while, I'm like, all right, come on, just kill him. Come on. Come on, mummies, Catch up with him and kill him. The original VHS release of this was a 90-minute omnibus version, so they took out all the cliffhangers and the episode title sequences and so on and condensed it down a little bit, and it does, I think, flow a little bit better. It cuts out some of that. I can see that happening. I think that would work quite well.
3: That's fair. It could have been a little bit much, but I thought it was well done.
1: I want to talk about Sarah Jane effectively being the audience surrogate again here. For the first time in a while, we have a companion who's like, Wait, so we have mummies building a rocket. This is (laughs)
3: ridiculous.
1: (laughs) Yes. It's been a while since we've had that kind of lens, and I think it's fantastic. And then she's like, look, I'm from 1980. Why don't we just leave? (laughs) I'm from the future. We know that the world doesn't end here. And I think that's really cool that Holmes decided to actually tackle that head on. Agreed.
3: I like that it's tackled, but then it always makes me question of how exactly time works
1: in oh, doctor no, who
2: no 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 <laughs> don't do it let's not go
1: there we'll be here all night
2: it would be funny if they had gone back and everything was the same the doctor's like i didn't have to do all this stuff i could have just left <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then the series ends <laughs> but in that scene i love lawrence's reaction walking into the TARDIS. It is wonderful. And it's one of the few times that we actually see the doctor cheer up because he has such clear joy at that reaction.
3: Scientists with another scientist who are just really excited about the science things they're doing.
1: Nerds.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, I did want to make one comment on the music. I love Dutters, but I do think that he, I think he was using a fiber slap. And I think he might have gone a little bit too crazy with it.
0: Oh, wow. So that's interesting because I was going to nominate the <laughs> chasing down of the yokel music, that creepy wailing music, <laughs> that I was going to nominate for best abusive music. The I call it the chasing down the yokel theme.
3: You said like a kind of wailing thing. I'm talking yeah. about the rattle thing, which
0: oh,
1: is a fiber slap. No, no, no.
3: Yeah, no no no, 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 no. That rattle stuff is a fiber slap, I believe.
1: Okay. I think it was effective, but I think it could have been a lot more effective if it was used a bit more sparingly, so I'll agree with you on that.
3: No, sorry, Riley, I was not referring to the chasing down the yokel theme.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was at that point where it truly did become a horror genre-type serial. Mummies could have been at night, that would have been more expensive to shoot, but, you know, you have your horror theme and someone's getting chased down by a monster. I mean, just classic.
1: You can't really go wrong
0: with that combination. Nope.
3: Ooh, another interesting thing from a directorial perspective was when Marcus got shot Hmm. and then like healed himself. Oh, I loved that. That was actually really cool.
0: Yeah.
3: What I love about Patty Russell, she does interesting things with her direction. She like pushes the boundary, I think, of what she can do, and that's great.
0: I wonder if that shot was accomplished by reversing the film, but having the actor Move in reverse and then they moved it forward. Maybe I know that's something that Lynch did to handle things like that would go in reverse order. I think that's what they did. Maybe they had the actor move backwards, like they were walking forwards, and then have the
1: explosion. But I
0: guess it would just be easier just to reverse it by itself and then have them move forward anyway.
1: Yeah, Julie just mentioned Patty Russell doing great things, and that's one of the reasons I actually think the massacre from season three would probably be much better if it existed because she directed it, and we weren't big fans of watching that. But I think if we could see what she did with it, we would probably give it a little bit of an upgrade. But anyway, I'm digressing here. As we get to the end of the episode, we have the mummies crushing the poacher.
3: Which was so weird. I don't know how you could actually die from that.
1: Yeah. I also don't know how he actually allowed himself to be put in that position. but That's neither here nor that.
3: Don't judge people's kinks, man. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And we end the episode with that scene in The Lodge where they turn on the Marconi scope to try and block the signal from Sutek to Marcus. Lawrence tries to stop it because he's a fucking idiot. (laughs) The mummies burst in. One lays its hands on Sarah, and that's our cliffhanger, and we're into part three.
3: Also, how does Sarah Jane know how to use this ring?
1: Yeah, yeah, good question.
3: Just curious. (laughs)
1: but she does and she sends it back to control wherever control may be because i don't think there's actually an established control point there is not but one of them destroys the marconi scope so that whole thing is out and the doctor is furious with lawrence and i honestly think this is one of the few times where the doctor is so angry tell someone that they don't deserve to be alive (laughs) 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 like that's really harsh
3: so when the doctor then goes to try to find
0: gel ignite.
3: Yeah, whatever that stuff is. And he's also knows that there's that invisible wall and he's walking around with a stick. <laughs> a friend of mine likes to use that stick to swat spider webs when going on hikes. Mm. That's kind of what I thought of. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I get it.
1: Yeah, I love that scene. And I love that Duddus or whomever is doing special sounds. I think it was Dick Mills gives us a little sound effect as it kind of scrapes along the edge of the force field. It's really cool and really well done. Really effective.
3: Although I do know at some point there was a moment of beeping intensifies and I got a worried rumble.
1: Oh no. (laughs) Cross that off of your bingo cards, listeners.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And we got a device warbling, which I thought was pretty cool. I don't think I've seen that one.
1: We need to talk about Sarah's Harry move. (laughs) Oh God. Throwing an explosive substance to the doctor is 100% something that Harry would have done. (laughs) come on, Sarah, you're better than that.
3: I was pretty okay with how Sarah was portrayed up until around this point. And then obviously in part four, I'm not as happy because (laughs) damsel in distress.
1: The one thing that amazes me with this story is the way they've portrayed two brothers, one of whom can't possibly conceptualize that something horrific has happened to the other. (laughs) Lawrence is so convinced that Marcus is in there somewhere and that's why he doesn't want him harmed in the cliffhanger for part two. And that's why he still tries to snap him out of it here, despite everything the doctor told him. And it almost feels like he is just getting through to Marcus and then Marcus kills Lawrence. It is brutal. It's tragic. And I think it leads to what is one of my favorite Sarah moments in this, where she is full of compassion Mm-hmm. for Lawrence after he's died. She is so upset at that one death. And then the flip side of that is the doctor has that fantastically alien detachment where he puts that one death into the context against the potential death toll and has that reaction of, we don't have the time to grieve Lawrence just now. I really like that whole concept.
0: like Reed, And also he not only puts it in perspective of the potential loss of life, but in perspective of the four other people that have died just in this serial And then we have the doctor putting on a mummy costume.
1: (laughs) Oh, poor Tom. I still can't believe they made Tom wear that. So I have
3: mixed opinions on this. And it might be a soapbox that I don't really need to be on. I don't know. But one of the reasons why I didn't want to do it was just because, okay, you can't see my face, so it doesn't matter. And that's come up time and time again. I definitely know that Pedro Pascal has had that from Mm. The Mandalorian and everything. But also at the same time, I'm like, if it's not really affecting your health, like people one no, it's you and two you are portraying this great character why is it such a big deal that oh i can't see your face it weirds me out sometimes when they make such a big issue out of it with the doctor in this one the fact that he was getting hurt yes i can understand that but i don't know it seems like a pride thing more than anything
2: yeah i would agree it's like it's a mummy costume come on have
1: fun with it
3: <laughs> <laughs> sorry so that's my little soapbox <laughs> of the day.
1: I get it, though. It's the why can't this be an extra? Why can't this be my stunt double? Why can't this be Terry Walsh?
3: See, I would be that person who would want to do all their own stunts. That would be me.
1: Julie Cruz.
3: (laughs) 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 Oh, no. I'm not as short as him. Oh, wait. (laughs) We're the same
1: (laughs) light. But I love where the plot kind of goes with this, how the doctor mingles with the mummies, lays down the gel ignite. Sarah gets her marksman moment, which I'm half like, wait, where did you learn to fire a rifle? But equally, I'm like, actually, firing a rifle is the kind of badass thing that Sarah probably can do and doesn't really need an explanation.
3: Yeah, she's being a badass. Like, don't question it. Let the woman do her thing.
1: Then we have Sutek holding back the explosion.
0: Which, when they said... (laughs) About when the doctor said, I've got to get to him and break his concentration. I was really expecting him to do like his Looney Tunes act from (coughs) Robot when he came into the (laughs) the house. Look at me, look at me. Um, What what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? Just something like that. But no, that would have been lighthearted. Hello, Sutek. I'm a spy. Yeah, exactly. (sighs) But we get episode
1: four instead, which. uh... Yeah. The cliffhanger to part three. We get the Doctor having gone through the sarcophagus, Bumbles into Sutek's tomb, gets zapped with Sutek's glowing eyes, and we get that close-up on the eyes, and that's our cliffhanger. And that takes us into part four.
3: I do like some of the conversation. Well, I say conversation. It's more of a (laughs) one-sided Sutek saying a bunch of things. I like some of it. I think it might have gone on a little bit too long, but I did like the, in my presence, you are an ant.
1: Gabriel Wolf, who voices Sutek, he has an amazing voice. It's so creepy, so evil, and lines like, kneel before the might of Sutek. He's just so over the top, and I absolutely adore it. Your evil is my good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well,
2: that explains everything.
1: I have to
0: point out that before we record, I like to just glance over the transcript Uh, that's available online, not officially from the BBC. Someone else puts it down. And it cracks me up in the Sutek doctor bit at the beginning of episode four. There is a direction in there that says after Sutek questions the doctor about being a time lord and a traveler in time and space, question mark afterwards, the transcript says, parentheses, he does the green eyes thing. (laughs) (laughs) He really did. He really did the green eyes thing.
3: The thing I don't love is that Sarah Jane becomes the damsel in distress at this point.
1: Ah, yeah. To be fair, though, without the doc, she's like stuck in 1911.
3: But what I don't like is that they found her. I wish she could have been able to hide, snuck into the TARDIS while he was taken over there and have it be out of her own will rather than, oh, hey, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to kill her.
2: That's true. It's probably just quicker from a story standpoint. I'm not saying it wouldn't be better to have that rather than Death to the Daleks Part 2, but I think that's why, like, okay, how can we get her over here quickly? All right, captured, there you
1: go. Yeah. I do love how the Doctor is clearly bullshitting Sutek at one point, despite all of the torture where he claims that the TARDIS controls are isomorphic. Come on, we've seen others control the TARDIS. (laughs) You never know, though, because it's not like there's a strict continuity here. That's true. Sutek goes ahead and just possesses him.
3: What do we think about the effect with the necklace?
1: Oh, the key traveling down yeah. the uh, oh. the vortex? <laughs> uh, I was going to say, it looked a lot better when I was six years old than it <laughs> does I, now. I bet.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Although I've seen worse. So I was like, you know what? They could have tried to CSO it. They could have tried this other thing. I'd rather see it on strings.
1: <laughs> it's fine. Okay, Julie, I know you're going to want to talk about Sarah crying once Scarman kills the doctor or he has the mummy kill. doctor
3: why do you think i'm gonna say something
1: (laughs) (laughs) because you've been so mad about that kind of thing i was hoping for another little rant here of the dying if you want
2: to hear more beautiful segues like this (laughs) listen to our past episodes
1: (laughs) never mind sarah
3: crying i mean is that something i've been talking a lot about i've been talking about about terrible death scenes
1: well i feel like it kind of feeds into your commentary on the damsel in distress aspect
3: No, I don't think that crying because the doctor is killed is a damsel in distress issue. That's a, holy crap, someone died in front of me. I would be crying too. Fair. Okay. Anthony, I'm not heartless.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's me told.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's discuss the second part of episode four, which to me is the legend of the hidden temple where the doctor and Sarah get in there and I do actually enjoy it. I do.
3: But it's like Death to the dogs all again.
2: Hold up! God <laughs> damn it, people! Listen! You can't let them introduce a new bullshit power to the doctor and just skip right over it. Yeah, to get to the kids' show portion.
1: <laughs> Go on, Don. Talk about the doctor's new power. The random
2: respiratory bypass system just because he couldn't think of a way to have the doctor survive being
1: choked to death by the mummy. And I feel like that was one where I think you mentioned it in Terror of the Zygons. And I, I was did. like, That hasn't happened yet. I'm like,
2: isn't that happening soon? Yes. And I was right. I just had the wrong episode. Very soon.
3: I mean, after 60 years, I'm like, eh, they're going to throw in things that make zero sense. It's fine.
1: I'm pretty excited when it happens for the first time, though. If they remember it. And this one does get brought up again. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Let's talk about Death of the Daleks Redux.
0: Yeah. Well, before we make fun of that repeat, I say in this part, I really thought that the Doctor and Sarah Jane, their chemistry
1: was really starting to click here.
0: Maybe it's because they were on a game show together, but (laughs) it really did.
1: I felt like it really started to click here. I really feel like Holmes is once again taking the piss here. (laughs) Maybe. There's that moment where the Doctor and Sarah catch up, realize they've caught up, turn around and leave.
2: Oh, I love that <laughs> Yeah, the, the Marx Brothers joke. <laughs> oh, that's so good. It's so good, but it doesn't fit the tone they've been setting
1: up this whole serial. (laughs) And then Sarah even says that she's reminded of the City of the Exelons and I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, Holmes is taking the piss. Did they cut out where she winked at the camera after saying it? (laughs) (laughs) We even get a shapes on the wall puzzle, which Hinchcliffe suggested based on Kafka, but I don't buy that. I think Hinchcliffe suggested it based on death to the fucking Daleks.
3: (laughs) I do not disagree with you at all. was it that was my line <laughs>
0: <laughs> well they go from that and then they do their own version of the riddle of the sphinx mm-hmm. yep. so she's caught in that little tube where you catch the hundred dollar bills that are blown <laughs> up in the air the
2: tube of silence
0: or you get slimed or you get slimed in there true and then when we get to the room of the eye of horus that was wonderfully trippy What's the use of cso
2: oh I disagree. No? no? Okay. There was just too much of it, and it was always the same pattern. <laughs> so you just lost any sense of, like, what is this supposed to be? So they're trapped in a Windows
0: 95 screensaver, is what <laughs> Yes, <you're saying? laughs> that's what I'm saying.
3: I like that, though, because I think what was trying to be put across is that we, as humans, can't really understand what it was. So I think it's the ultimate trippy of there's no good way of portraying it because we have no conception of what it would actually be.
2: That's a very Lovecraftian way of putting it. <laughs> this thing like is so it. horrible. I can't possibly <laughs> describe it. Well, What's it like? I can't describe it. It's just horrible. Just trust me on this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which is why there's never been a good Lovecraft film.
3: Are we two that all of a sudden all the doors are just all in a line? that opened?
1: Well, hang on. We got to talk about the destruction of the eye of horus first yeah and scarman's proclamation i'm free free at last and i love (laughs) the ambiguity there is that the voice of sutek or is it a moment of self-determination before scarman dies
2: and turns into a really cool looking skeleton yeah that was a nice effect
1: yes then we get all the doors opening perfectly aligned and the quick dash back to earth that was
3: fun And then obviously something from the TARDIS is going to fix everything because all of a sudden, yes, you have to have that final thing that helps. And then we get that, no.
1: Hang on though, (laughs) Julie. I have to ask and I have to point it out if anyone didn't notice it. Who saw my favorite production error in the entirety of Doctor Who? What? Which one? When Sutek stands up from his chair, there is very visibly a hand holding the cushion down. (laughs)
2: and you don't appreciate thing for keeping that cushion comfortable (laughs) you call it a production
1: error you sicken me (laughs) it is literally my favorite thing ever in doctor who Mm. the hand of sutek (laughs) (laughs) but yes deus ex machina part of the tardis we've never heard of before that wasn't established very well nope yeah sends sutek into the far future and to his death.
0: I thought it's kind of not the far future. I thought it was like he was trapped in a transport dimension and time just millions and millions of years added up on him inside of it because he was trapped in it and he you know, Something like that. destroyed, I don't know, how a god dies by natural causes. If it's a couple million years, I don't know.
2: Can we get another no from Julie? Yes, please.
3: <laughs> I was going to do a thing, but now it won't come off the right way. No, nope, you're not going to hear it.
2: Yeah, I know. Way
3: to go, Annie.
1: Yeah. Oh, blame me. Sure. You and your hand butt ruined
0: everything.
1: <laughs> 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 okay, we end with the Priory burning, tying it into the beginning of part one, and the Doctor and Sarah leaving in the TARDIS. And that's the end of our story. Before we move on to scoring, Julie, how many women were there in this story?
3: <laughs> Zero.
1: <laughs> are you assuming Sutex gender? <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am.
3: Well, maybe one of the mummies was a woman.
1: Could be. They were kind of busty. Yeah. But there were no explicit women. <laughs> explicit no, women. no, there really weren't. No. I do want to give a point on the camp count to the butt hand.
3: <laughs> You're the only one who cares about the butt
1: hand. And I care about it so much. So we're giving it a point. <laughs> this is Andy try to regain control of the show after last time. <laughs> <Yeah>. This is. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and score this. And Riley, you're going to go first because I'm in control and I say you are. Oh, no.
0: <laughs> I enjoyed the move into horror, the pace, the premise. Like I said before, I really could have enjoyed it more if there was more mood setting. Give me some lit candles at night, cobwebs, something. The chemistry between the doctor and Sarah Jane, I think, is really coming in right now. And I look forward to it growing. And overall, this was fun. I enjoyed it. It's not as strong as some of my favorites, but I hope going into the future that this will be our new base level of quality and we don't dip below it. If so, I think we're on a great path for the show, but we'll see. So I'm going to give it 8 out of 10 Detonation Heads.
2: Okay, done. let's see you next. I think I should set this up as a warning. I watched this after two nights of not sleeping at all. <laughs> So my opinion in the future may change simply because, well, obviously. Overall, I liked it because it plays into my wheelhouse of interests. It's essentially a ripoff of a hammer horror movie. I'm okay with that. However, I don't think it's as good as its fandom reputation would suggest. As Riley rightly pointed out, there's not much mood setting, and I think it really could have benefited from that. But I think that probably would have driven up the production budget. Because being shot in the day, it just makes the mummies look even more (laughs) silly and laughable. I'm not as intense about it as Julie is, but yes, a woman somewhere in the story would have been a nice touch. And all that I could forgive, but in episode four, it kind of falls apart a little bit. You have a redo of Death to Daleks, but without the awesome floor. (laughs) If you're going to crap out and do it in a funny way. And the ending is really just kind of, oh, I'm just going to make some stuff up. Very Star Trek BSI. But overall, I enjoyed it. So just to steal something from what Anthony was going to say, I'm going to give it eight hidden butt
1: hands out of ten. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I was totally going to use arse hands as my metric. (laughs) All right, Julie, over to you while I think of a new one.
3: Obviously, I was pretty vocal about a good amount of my criticisms while we were talking through this. I am not particularly thrilled with Sutek as the villain. I don't think it really comes across enough of how bad of a force that he is. I do like the people that are affected by him. So I love Marcus. I thought he was wonderful. And I love Patty Russell's direction. So I'm very happy with how all of that went down. But I have some issues with some of the music. There's just some things overdone by Dutters, but it's not like stuff in the past, so I can't judge them too harshly on it. And I am probably going to go with six and a half busty mummies out of ten.
1: Before I go ahead and give my rundown and my score, what I will say is on the Doctor Who magazine Mighty 200 poll, Oh, no. Pyramids of Mars came as the seventh best Doctor Who story of all time.
3: No. No. (laughs) And on
1: the 50th anniversary poll five years later, it was eighth. Wow. Incorrect. False. (laughs) (laughs) When Don talked about this story's reputation in fandom, that is what he meant. This has consistently come as one of the top ten stories of all time.
0: I agree with Julie. (laughs) Just like Don, I enjoy what they're doing here, but it could have been done better. And I haven't even gone through all of classic Doctor Who, and I can already tell you probably 10 episodes, 15 episodes that are better than this one.
1: That leads us to me. And as you've probably guessed, I have a certain amount of childhood nostalgia around this. <laughs> but watching this critically as a 35-year-old versus as a 7-year-old, it has a few problems. I do agree the total lack of women is a little problematic watching it with the lens of 2022. This would definitely not get made the same way today. However, I still struggle to figure out how you could effectively have a strong female character in who wouldn't just die like everyone else. And I kind of get that it's a product of the time and product of who was writing it. I do think part four was kind of rushed. But there is so much else I like here and I do really like Sutek and I thoroughly disagree with Julie on that. I think Sutek is fantastic and I adore the voice of Gabriel Wolf and his little turns of phrases calling people playthings of Sutek and things like that. I adore him.
3: See, he's all talk. That's all I got out of it. (laughs) And that's not enough for me.
1: I also love the supporting characters. We've rightly given props to Marcus. I think Lawrence is fantastic. I adore Woody and Harry Sullivan. I think Dr. Warlock is fantastic too. And I love how over the top Ibrahim Nameen is. I wanted more of him and it's kind of a shame that he died at the end of part one. I think the mummy design is a little bit clunky, but they're still very, very fun. And like Don and Riley, I kind of really enjoy the gothic horror setting. So I'm going to give this a little more because of my childhood nostalgia. But this is going to get eight and a half out of 10 groveling insects, (laughs) which gives us a story average of 7.75, which I think makes it the fourth highest scoring of the Tom Baker era so far behind Ark in Space, Genesis of the Daleks and Terror of the Zygons. So a decent showing, despite Julie's low rating.
0: And where is it overall for us? Is it number seven or eight? Is it number seven or eight?
1: (laughs) Sorry, Don.
0: I'm trying to kill you with
1: my mind. I want you to know that. (laughs) Don is not Sutek. Riley, this is joint 28th. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. There are a fair number that come higher than this. This is tied with the Daleks, Spearhead from Space, and Day of the Daleks. That's fair. That brings us to the end of the episode. We will be back next time around when we head to Contemporary Earth, or do we, as we prepare to fight off the android invasion. But in the meantime, thank you so very much for listening, and as always, have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philipek, and myself Anthony Williams. This episode, Geometrically Swole, was recorded on Wednesday, the 7th of December 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4d, and you can also email us at watches4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, Julie really isn't afraid to fly in the face of popular fan opinion and take down the classics.